Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com slash unconfirmed. I'm podcasting today from the Oslo Freedom Forum by the Human Rights Foundation, a three-day event that has brought together human rights activists from around the world. My guest today is Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer for the Human Rights Foundation. Welcome, Alex. Thanks so much for having me on, Laura. I've had quite a humbling, inspiring, and thought-provoking couple of days here, listening to stories of people who have been fighting for basic human rights and who have been imprisoned, tortured, or exiled for their courage, or who, as in the case of North Korean defector Yeonmi Park, was human trafficked as she made her way to freedom. You also have a tech track here at the forum, and I couldn't help but notice that blockchain technology features quite heavily in that part of the program. You had me moderate a panel on blockchain versus the surveillance state, which we will release on Unchained, so I urge listeners to check that out. You also had a decentralization lunch, and you had other panels featuring the social impact team from Consensus, the MakerDAO stablecoin project, and Afghan tech entrepreneur Roy Maboob. The latter, of whom, the latter two of whom were also unchained. How do you see blockchain technology fitting into the fight for human rights? I'm so happy you asked that. And the way I want to start is by just saying from the perspective of someone who's a human rights activist, kind of discovering Bitcoin kind of late compared to the, the industry and seeing that very other few people in the human rights space have kind of realized how interesting uh, Bitcoin and other crypto projects can potentially be with regard to civil liberties and privacy and, and human rights, it has been such a fascinating journey. And we've discovered two things. Number one, Bitcoin and other kinds of crypto projects are having a remarkable impact right now uh, on the human rights of people around the world. And we can get into that. Um, but they also uh, are having, in, in some cases, a negative impact on people. So I'd like to discuss both of these. Yeah, well, let's start with a positive impact. Yeah, so I think you, you got to start with Bitcoin and you look at even just the genesis block of Bitcoin when you sit there and read the very first block of the Bitcoin blockchain and you realize that this was a political act. You, re you read the fact that essentially the creator of Bitcoin was reacting to the way governments were trying to solve or address hyperinflation, uh, a rather economic crisis by just printing more money. And, and obviously people who study hyperinflation see the tremendous damage that this does to society. First and foremost to pensioners, people who have saved their money their whole lives, and they watch that money just disappear. And this doesn't just happen in places like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. I mean, it happens in, it's happened recently in everywhere from Greece to Brazil. I mean, it's happened in Argentina. So the first thing that, that 
brought my attention to, to the blockchain and cryptocurrency space was Bitcoin and Bitcoin's ability uh, not just to allow uh, you and I to transact value in a way that no government can stop, but a- as an as a interesting idea, a revolutionary idea of that you and I can actually own our own money. Wow. And so when you say that you're seeing the positive impact already, do you see people using cryptocurrencies in this way now? According to Democracy Earth, which is a, a nonprofit in this space, 10% of all local Bitcoins.com transactions are taking place in Venezuela. Wow. Now, of course, Venezuela is really where the world's first crypto war is taking place, which is something that I, I think may unfold in many other countries where you have a people who have essentially faced hyperinflation to such a dramatic extent that their money is almost worthless. And they started to look at other options, not just, of course, dollars, but Bitcoin. And the government saw this, and the government didn't like this because they want to control everything there. So the authoritarian government in Venezuela started arresting Bitcoin miners and started cracking down on this situation. They also launched their own coin called Petro with the backing of the Chinese and Russian government. So on the one hand, they're trying to fight the people's use of Bitcoin. and On the other hand, they're trying to create a centralized cryptocurrency to essentially raise money for their failed state. So this is, this is the kind of the world's first crypto war, and it's happening in Venezuela as we speak. And when you call it a crypto war, do you have a sense of who's winning the war right now? Well, obviously, the government is winning uh, at the moment. Uh, but I do believe, you know, from my putting my human rights hat back on, that, that the people are protesting in a remarkably restrained way, in a peaceful way. And I, I do believe in the next year or two uh, that there will be some sort of democratic transition in Venezuela, or at least I hope so. And just to go back, when you said that you think the government is winning, is that because the Petro is having success or because they are effective in this crackdown against using Bitcoin? I mean, they have a monopoly on violence and uh, they're incredibly repressive in the way that they treat people that, that disagree with them. But, you know, Bitcoin is providing like kind of a way out for some people. It allows people to send remittances. It allows people to send money to their family uh, in a way that's, you know, perhaps a little more safe and secure uh, than than a way that they would normally do it. There's been a lot of interesting reporting in this area recently. Um, So when someone says, well, you know, I'm a little skeptical of, of Bitcoin and what it can do. I think a lot of times that comes from a place of privilege. So, you know, we have, I have, I live in San Francisco. I have a financial system that works. I can go to the bank. I have depositor insurance. I can take a line of credit out. So can people here in Norway. So there's every, they have every right to be skeptical because they don't really need Bitcoin. But people in places like Venezuela, Zimbabwe, I mean, pe- people in places where the national currency has depreciated 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 1,000 percent have a really desperate need for something like a Bitcoin. We already kind of started to shift into the negative impacts that blockchain technology are having in the fight for human rights. But can you expand beyond Venezuela? Well, and and again, I think that you're seeing both sides, right? So you're seeing Bitcoin as a tool for people and you're seeing a centralized cryptocurrency being used by the government. And again, this is an interesting interplay for someone from a human rights background looking at this where you see people and individuals and activists and journalists probably very excited about the idea of like an open blockchain, uh, permissionless blockchain like Bitcoin. And governments, especially very repressive ones, really excited about centralized blockchains that have a single point of control. And I think you know this is something that you're going to see playing out in the future. Um, I, I think one other area that we can just visit quickly is to go back to your to our mutual friend Roya Mapub, who was one of Afghanistan's first female technology CEOs in Afghanistan, you know, Roya had this uh, crisis where she was starting her company and she needed to pay her employees. And um, 
it was very hard to pay them through the traditional banking system because the women that she was paying, you know, their uncles and husbands and brothers didn't want them to go have a bank account, didn't want them. They wanted to control their, their, their money, right? And there were some at the time, uh, things like PayPal that I guess were sanctioned or really hard to use where I wasn't able to get to those. So someone told her, well, what about Bitcoin? And to make a long story short, you know, she started to pay some of these female employees in Bitcoin. And she was telling me that one of these people actually ended up fleeing the country and, and became a refugee and had to go through Iran and Turkey and made it to Europe. But the, the cool part was uh, she, she kept her Bitcoin with her, you know, because, you know, when you become a refugee, it's not like you can say, oh, well, maybe on Wednesday I'll go take my money out of the bank. You're, you're usually leaving like right away. So this woman was able to keep her money with her. She was able to keep her financial freedom. And, and in a lot of conservative cultures, let's say, especially in Central Asia, let's say, where women aren't allowed to have financial freedom, I do think that things like Bitcoin are going to be really disruptive and very positive. Oh, that's interesting. She didn't tell me that story. She was on my other podcast, Unchained, but she talked about some other things, but not that story. One other actually area that I wanted to ask you about where we are maybe seeing a negative impact from blockchain technology is North Korea, at least in news reports, it's been said that it may be mining cryptocurrency or even hacking into South Korean exchanges to get cryptocurrency. And actually the largest hack ever in the crypto space is attributed perhaps to North Korea. What do you think the motivation is and what could the consequences be if they obtain a lot? I mean, the motivation is greed and power. But I think what you have to look at is that the North Korean government operates differently than democracies. So what they can do it is at a very young age, they can pick out people in the society who are extremely good um, at, for example, hacking uh, or science or math. And then those people are trained to become you know, cyber warriors for the regime. And they spend a lot of money on this. So proportionally speaking, though it may be a small country, they have very sophisticated cyber warfare. And they, you know, they've been obviously getting into this space before other governments. There are a lot of other corrupt governments around the world that could be doing what they're doing, meaning the North Koreans, but, but they're not yet. But I think you're going to see more of that. Um, I think the North Koreans obviously spotted a comparative advantage where the South Koreans, you know, were weak and, you know, they had a, a, a security uh, lapse, essentially. Um, and, and they're going to keep taking advantage of that, for sure. Yeah, and you think maybe they're using that money because of these sanctions and they're using it to purchase things that they can't otherwise, or there's no way to know, I suppose. But Yeah, I mean, obviously you can see some activity from, from that part of the world. I do think it's interesting, you know, the more we talk about the ability of currencies, digital currencies like Bitcoin, to have an impact in in, in tough environments. Um, I, I do wonder about this idea of, you know, really anywhere connected to the internet, you can obviously use Bitcoin. And I wonder about the idea of, um, of sending Bitcoin into North Korea v via the official state, um, you know, bodies that have access to it. So theoretically, you could send Bitcoin to someone in North Korean university who would then take that and then perhaps in some arbitrage scheme, you know, participate in some black market activity and, and on the side end up making a lot of money and then going to the Chinese border and exchanging it for something. So I'm, I'm very interested in this area of like, you know, is Bitcoin going to start to become part of the black market economy in North Korea? It's something I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by. But in terms of, you know, outsiders, you know, again, human rights activists, how we can make an impact. I'll tell you the story of someone who's here at the Oslo Freedom Forum. He's a friend of mine. He quit his job at Goldman Sachs, and he's decided to try and help the people of Venezuela uh, using Bitcoin. And he's working on an open source app that hopefully you'll be able to download for free online, which will basically have four functions. Uh, one would be uh, kind of like a bread, basic bread wallet, Bitcoin wallet. One would be uh, a local bitcoins.com kind of uh, map. One would be like a 
pricing and commodity function where you could see the, the price of basic goods in bolivars and dollars and bitcoin and one would be kind of like an open bazaar app where you could buy and sell things and the idea is that they they spread the software and people download it and then they start sending bitcoin to to these apps and i do wonder if this is something that could that could make a difference and whether it could be used elsewhere around the world uh, that is like a very specific example of something i think people think should be talking about i love this that's so interesting we're going to keep talking about new and interesting crypto projects that could impact human rights, impact investing, and more. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. Element's goal is to focus on clients in an integrative manner by offering all services a crypto-enabled company requires throughout its life cycle, such as corporate finance, asset management, OTC trading, treasury solutions, and technology services. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com unconfirmed. I'm speaking with Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. What design choices do you hope that crypto projects or blockchain companies will make so as to ensure that we get to a more ideal mm -hmm. or positive scenario with crypto rather than a dystopia? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not someone with a computer science background, but I do have a background in political science. And I study centralized systems versus decentralized systems. I study democracies and dictatorships. And what's really interesting is that, you know, centralized systems are only as good as the humans behind them. So, for example, Estonia has this incredible digital system where there's virtual residency and it's extremely efficient and everybody loves it. And we trust the Estonian government. They're not going to kidnap somebody in the middle of the night because they're a dissident. But what if Putin invades tomorrow, which is not an outrageous idea. It could happen. Then Putin gets that centralized system and now he's in control. And then, and then this is concerning to us. So I really hope coders and people who are building stuff in the space can think about building decentralized distributed platforms and products. And how can investors choose products that would help further human rights? Well, I think in the last few years, you've seen some really exciting uh, projects that promise innovation in, in, in decentralization and, and the distribution of storage and communications. Um, I'll name a couple uh, that we've worked with through the Oslo Freedom Forum, uh, whether it's uh, like a decentralized data platform like Blockstack or something like Orchid where people are trying to do uh, a decentralized VPN um, or even uh, something that's more geared towards helping coordinate people power like Tezos. I think these projects are really worth looking at for people who are basically doing impact investing. You know, can you make money and do well from your, for yourself and at the same time support and improve privacy and civil liberties for people, uh, that is a question people should be asking themselves right now, especially since, you know, democracy is under threat across the world in both open and closed societies alike. And the sustainable development goals that the UN has come up with ha has 17 different aspects or 17 different goals. None of them mention the words democracy or even corruption. Human rights is only mentioned once. And these goals drive all of the world's impact investing. So there's really a gap here at a time of need. And these new interesting areas and companies are, are potentially providing a solution to that where we could say, well, we have agri-tech and we have clean tech and we have fintech and ed tech and health tech. Why not dem tech? Why not democracy tech? And what would that look like? What's an example of some kind of project that you think would further democracy? Well, um, 
I think even before I, I personally or HRF personally became interested in blockchain projects, you know, we were looking at encrypted communications for activists. That's what we've been doing for years here at the Oslo Freedom Forum is connecting journalists and activists with people who can help them through things like Wicker or Signal uh, encrypt and, and, and make sure their communications are safe online. The, those would obviously be companies that, that you could say, hey, I could invest in these things uh, and, and also feel better about my efforts to make the world uh, more safe and secure in terms of interaction between people. Um, in the same way, I think a lot of these companies that, that we're trying to feature and trying to engage here at the Isle of Freedom Forum might be able to do that. I mean, it remains unseen. A lot of them, of course, are being born. The space is so early. A lot of them are going to fail. Most of them are going to fail. Almost all of them are going to fail. But a few of them are not. A few of them are going to really change the world, and I do believe that. So encrypted communication, obviously, is an important technology, but it's not quite blockchain. Um, but identity, I think, is one area that a lot of people talk about when it comes to blockchain technology. Is that an area where you think some kind of blockchain identity project could help further mm. human rights? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm very excited for the future uh, where I can go to a bar and present and, you know, I can scan my phone and not have to show the person at the door my home address. I mean, that seems like a basic thing that we're going to laugh at, that we used to have to do that in the same way that now we laugh at, oh, um, walking to the street and looking for a taxi when we have Uber. I, I do think we're going to get ra radical innovation in the, in the identity space. I think it's going to take time. People are going to fight it, especially in the health space. I mean, when you think about the fact that I'd love to own my medical records and have control over that, that's going to be a big struggle. So I'm excited about and would encourage people to really look at solutions in this space, but like definitely temper your expectations. And do you think that would be something that governments would also fight against? Because governments right now control our identity? Absolutely. Not only governments, but international organizations. I mean, essentially, the head of the IMF has been on a warpath against Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, these governments, all governments are very concerned about open cryptocurrencies and blockchain projects because it's going to erode their power and control. This is, this is just a fact, and it's going to be something that we start to see unfold. And what about applied to elections? Do you think using blockchain technology in elections could also help further human rights? Again, I would want to be very, very careful about that. I think there's a greater chance that authoritarian governments use the word blockchain to apply PR to their own elections before we actually see it real innovation with election with blockchain based election platforms so for example russia has something called active citizen for moscow people who live in moscow and in december they decided to slap the word blockchain on it and of course everybody from the bbc to every other media outlet totally fell for it and said oh is, is russia trying to make its elections more transparent of course they were not people can't even vote for their you know for their politicians using active citizen it's just the renaming of streets but the crazy thing is this blockchain i'm doing air quotes here blockchain based system it runs on proof of authority so it's like, you know, if one super node decides that, oh, the people have chosen to name this street Nemtsov Street instead of Putin Street, oh, we don't like that. So we're just going to change it. I mean, it defeats the entire idea uh, inspired by Bitcoin of this, of this new potential world. Oh, wow. Wow. It's like the Long Island blockchain company, that IT company. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing that I mean, applied to governments. A friend of mine said this and it's perfect. Look, there's so much noise in this space. Almost everything is either fraudulent or it's going to fail, but the signal's so strong and there's stuff here that's really going to help people. And I just am so interested in it. having inter activists and journalists interact with those technologists and investors so that we can actually make uh, a future where we're building stuff that's going to actually increase our freedom and privacy as opposed to increase the power of authoritarian governments. I know you are 
deep into the crypto rabbit hole and have been exploring this space quite a lot. So I was curious, what other blockchain projects have missions that you think could help human rights activists or have got your eye in regard to their potential for your work? Well, I'll, I'll try to be specific. One uh, is, a, is a project that's very much still being born. It's very still much sort of in the alpha or beta stage, but it's called Graphite. And it's something that should be immediately recognizable as important for journalists and activists. Right now, when you write or share or collaborate with documents, most of your listeners probably use Google Docs. Now, Google owns all that stuff in the same way that you know Apple probably owns your music and your photos and um, Netflix owns your movie choices and Amazon owns, all, owns everything that you, you, you buy in your, your shopping history. Google owns all your documents, and they could lock you out of it. They could censor it. They could delete it. They probably won't, but they might, especially if you live in an authoritarian government. And what I think is really cool about Graphite is it, it's a it's a, an experiment in collaborating with other people online using documents and spreadsheets in a way that is censorship resistant, decentralized, distributed, and encrypted. And and anyone who's in the journalism field should immediately find this project really interesting. I mean, can, can this actually be scaled to work? That that would be fascinating to me. Yes. Well, for listeners of my other podcast, Unchained, you should definitely listen to the recording from the Oslo Freedom Forum because Ryan Shea of Blockstack talks about Graphite and mentions how an article about Blockstack was actually written in Graphite. And I do plan to start using Graphite or at least check it out. I, you know, I don't know what the experience is like, but it's been so great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Yeah. Just one sentence to leave your listeners. Yes. The two things that, as a human rights activist, I find most important about blockchain uh, are censorship resistance and the ownership of data. And I think that's what people should look at when they're thinking about how can I do good in this space? There's a lot of noise out there, but, but think about censorship resistance and, and, and ownership of data. And I think you're going to find some cool projects and, and hopefully you can do some good. Yes, yes. Because also, as we discussed in our panel, users and investors, we all have choices that we can make when it comes to this technology. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.